How important are right-wing thinkers in shaping the drift toward right-wing populism in recent years? What role do these thinkers play? How do they interact with right-wing organizations and groups? And how, do the, how does this differ from the way that these relationships work on the left? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the role of far-right thinkers in the contemporary political landscape with Jim McAdams of the University of Notre Dame. A. James McAdams, I'll call him Jim, is the William M. Scholl Professor of International Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. For 16 years, he was also director of the Nanovic Institute for European Studies. He's written widely on European affairs, especially on Central Europe and Germany more particularly, uh, as well as on global communism. His numerous books include Germany Divided, Judging the Past in Unified Germany, a book he was working on around the time I first got to know him some years ago, perhaps 30, uh, or perhaps neither of us wants to remember. Uh, and he's also author recently of a book called Vanguard of the Revolution, The Global Idea of the Communist Party, which first came out uh, in hardcover from Princeton University Press in 2017, is now out in paper and was named by Foreign Affairs as one of the best books of 2018. Uh, it's the first kind of global look at the uh, history of the Communist Party, starting way back in the 1840s and carrying the story uh, all the way up to today. He's also recently published a volume on contemporary far-right thinkers and the future of liberal democracy, edited with Alejandro Castrillon. And that's the book that we're probably going to focus more on today, but his uh, lifelong uh, interest in and research on radicalism is uh, important background for the conversation we're going to have today. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Jim McAdams. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. So, uh, as I've just said, you've recently published this book. It's an edited collection. It's not all yours, but uh, the book is about far-right thinkers and the future of liberal democracies around the world. Uh, maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about some of the people that the book addresses, the, that the book is about. Yeah, sure. The uh, What we tried to do with the book uh, was to think about why uh, a group of pretty articulate thinkers are significant for the future of liberal democracy as well as uh, contemporary affairs. And we were very deliberate uh, about choosing them uh, because we wanted to draw a distinction between the sorts of far-right uh, extremist uh, intellectuals like Alexander Dugin, uh, who, who are essentially backward-looking uh, people. And um, it's very easy to, when you're speaking about far-right thinkers, to say, well, they're all neo-fascists uh, or variations on that, Nazis. And I think that is uh, uh, misleading. And in many cases, it's a mistake to approach these people that way. Because 
the intellectuals that we're interested in uh, are people uh, that are speaking within liberal democracy. That is to say, uh, most of them are still alive. Uh, this is not the 1930s. Liberal democracy, uh, you know, is not a project that's beginning uh, in the Western world, uh, but it's a uh, it's an idea of politics uh, that is well established, um, although on shaky foundations these days. And um, what makes a lot of these individuals significant is they take concepts uh, that we associate with liberal democracy and kind of twist them so that uh, they end up uh, uh, supporting ideas, uh, uh, you know, racist ideas, nationalist ideas in the name of democracy. And that makes them uh, quite significant. So, you know, one of the major kind of preoccupations of what we, I think, would agree is the far right today is the, the role of identity. I mean, identity seems in some ways to become, have become a kind of master concept for politics on the right and the left, or at least part of the left. Um, but it's been a very significant part of, you know, what's going on in Europe, certainly, and certainly in the United States. Sometimes it's referred to as identitarian, you know, movements or politics. Um, could you talk a little bit about how that idea has been developed and, you know, how it may resemble or differ from, you know, the, the stress on identity and group belonging in the past? Uh, yes, the uh, uh, identity is a very elastic concept, and that's what makes it attractive to these people. They don't necessarily refer to identity, but in a, a context in which uh, politics is polarized, um, they use uh, various tropes. Uh, like homeland, like uh, uh, Josh Hawley has this concept of the great American middle, uh, identitarians in Europe uh, who are uh, uh, basically exclusionary folks. Um, they they use appeals to the idea of a kind of common group, a commonality of interest uh, that will bring people together. And like I said, that ultimately are based on a quite dubious foundation. Indeed. So, um, I mean, one question I have, and I know that you're thinking about this as well, is the question of, you know, the relationship between these thinkers, which we generally regard as, you know, people somewhat abstracted from uh, everyday life and everyday politics and, and, you know, and their connection to ordinary people who don't really ever who never read these people that you're writing about, uh, maybe have never heard of them, but yet, you know, their influence is felt. I mean, how does that work? Uh, yeah, that's precisely the point that, uh, uh, they don't necessarily talk to each other. Some do. Um, most don't. Uh, but the way that, uh, uh, that these ideas work and, uh, seem to travel, uh, is, is based upon uh, the fact that people in positions of power, people uh, with wide audiences, I, I particularly think about Tucker Carlson, whom I find quite frightening, uh, are able to 
borrow concepts uh, from these thinkers without ever having uh, had to read them. Or if, if you just, I'm focusing on the United States now, but if you think about somebody like uh, Steve Bannon, um, he'll suggest that he has read these people and he's an intelligent individual. He may have read some of them, uh, but none of that really matters. Uh, what does matter is that people uh, in positions uh, who can influence wide numbers of individuals, and let's take Tucker Carlson as an example, are able to use the, the tropes of people who are basically intellectuals, who are in ivory towers, uh, to push ideas that are inimical to uh, liberal democracy. And I'll give you a good example, uh, which is uh, Carlson is now uh, propag propagating this idea of, uh, of the Great Replacement. And among the most radical circles in Europe, what the Great Replacement means is that uh, uh, people of Caucasian birth are no longer having babies. They're threatened with uh, extinction soon. Uh, the the masses of the unwashed people of color from North Africa, from the Middle East and elsewhere will take over. So um, what Tucker Carlson does with that idea uh, is he says replacement, um, but he refines it in a way that basically is, is meant to achieve the same goals. So he'll say, well, um, the problem with America today is that uh, you can't use the word white. And so he'll say, if you're white, you should be just as proud as if you're African-American or Hispanic or or whatever. And um, but what he what he really means by that and where he has immense power uh, is to create an audience or tap into an audience of aggrieved people, particularly white males. And this is true in Europe uh, as well to um, justify, legitimate a kind of new language within liberalism that w simply wasn't acceptable before. It was always there in the extreme rights groups like neo-Nazis in the United States was always there. But now it's refined so that um, he and others and cable news can say, well, look, we, we believe in democracy. And we believe in equality. And because we believe in these concepts, therefore, uh, we want majorities to be taken seriously, too, not just uh, minorities who get all the benefits. Interesting. So uh, I want to pick up on something you said, which was that these figures that you've written about or that your colleagues have written about um, don't really talk to each other necessarily. I mean, some of them do, but you said for the most part, they don't. And. You know, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about why that's the case. I mean, I remember uh, somebody kind of making the joke that there would be no such thing as a nationalist international, right? Mm -hmm. The international idea was something that was associated with communism and the working class, and as you well know from your book on the Communist Party. Um, so is that sort of is that the reason they don't talk to each other, or is it the, that the politics in each country is so different, or what? What is that about? Well, I mean, you have to make some distinctions here because some of them do talk to each other, uh, but they have different purposes. So if you look at Steve Bannon, for example, 
Uh, he spelled, he has spent a lot of time trying to create a kind of, uh, uh, community of far right thinkers and far right politicians uh, in, in Europe. And he hasn't been as successful as he hoped to be. Uh, but he, he's trying, he's trying to set up his own institute of far right thinking. Um, and I, I think they actually have a building in uh, Italy somewhere. Uh, but now he's also turning his uh, attention to the United States. So he's one example of a person who is uh, trying to legitimate his views by seeking the support of others. And another example, an example of the kind of person he's trying to recruit is uh, uh, Orban in Hungary. Uh, so Orban... Uh, you know, who's a very clever politician, is not so much interested in the ideas. He's interested in the attention. And so he's glad to invite Bannon to have a meeting with him. And uh, they can pretend uh, that they're, you know, exchanging learned thoughts. Uh, but uh, the, the important thing is that there is a kind of, there is a core to these people's ideas. Uh, a core of elements, you get back to the issue of identity, for example, which uh, in in some way uh, is different, but in other ways um, is quite the same. I mean, mm -hmm. the attempt to, to build up, you know, a particular uh, identity, a particular, uh, uh, you know, any group of ideas that, that helps them influence people or seem to influence people um, that brings them together. And, I, and so, you know, I'd mentioned the case of Urban is quite interesting. You, you find uh, activists, intellectuals like Bannon uh, in Western Europe, uh, you find them in the United States, uh, but curiously in, in places like Hungary and Poland, you don't need them. So the leaders become the articulate spokespersons for for these ideas. Right. So, I mean, the your mention of uh, Bannon and uh, the building in Italy, I think that's right. I, I can't remember exactly where it was or where, where it is, but um, I do believe it is in Italy. And um, it reminds me that there's a kind of not just a racial element to some of this thinking, uh, but also a religious one. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think Bannon, you know, conceives himself as a kind of a Catholic who's, uh, you know, trying to save ordinary people and, and, you know, put an end to poverty and things like that. I mean, he saw himself as a kind of class revolutionary, I think, in effect, and saw Trump as his stalking horse. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about, you know, those aspects of Bannon's thinking, but also about uh, the role of religion more generally in these far right thinkers uh, ideas. Yeah, this is quite interesting because um, one would expect religion to play a greater role than it does, particularly in Europe. Uh, I certainly uh, am not in the position to question whether Bannon is, is a sincere Catholic or not, uh, but I see uh, what he does with Catholicism uh, is to create a tool. It's one of many tools. 
uh, that he can use to make his case. In Europe, uh, many of the supporters of uh, the far right are not religious at all. Uh, in fact, many of them are, are anti-religious. Or, to the extent that they're religious, they have a kind of romantic conceptions of uh, a religion that isn't at all like what, what we would call religion. Uh, so it can be an amalgam. It can be, you know, borrowing from Zoroastrianism. Uh, and uh, so religion, again, I'd emphasize is, is more of a tool and less of a, of a true guide to their behavior and interest. So you've mentioned, you know, Europe for obvious reasons a number of times now, and uh, I thought maybe this would be an opportunity to ask a question about a country that you know very well, that I know somewhat, uh, namely Germany, uh, which just had a, uh, an election and, uh, you know, finally Angela Merkel has come to the end of her very long uh, period in the chancellor's office. Um and there's a new player on the block, and that, of course, is the alternative for Germany. I mean, it's not brand new. It's been around for a number of years, but uh, really came out of the woodwork uh, with the so-called refugee crisis of 2015-2016 um, and has now become a fixture on the German political scene, much to the chagrin of really basically all the main parties. Uh, but it's, you know, it's getting like more than 10% of the vote in the country as a whole and, you know, 20% and more in some of the uh, states of the former East Germany. So, you know, I mean, the AFD really started as a kind of anti-Brussels movement or party, um, but saw this immigration issue as something to grab onto in the refugee crisis and has become something quite different from what it was before that time. Uh, but in any case, it's sort of the flagship, if you like, far-right party uh, in Germany today. So maybe you could talk a little bit about you, what you think is going on there and you know who, who are the influential thinkers that maybe we would have heard of. Um, or is that really not part of the scene in Germany? Yeah, I think you need to just, you know, draw a line, uh, in most respects, not all respects, between the far right thinkers that we cover in our book and, uh, the AfD, uh, in Germany. Uh, because, uh, well, first of all, it's a very worrisome development. Uh, it's a shock to anybody that has studied Germany that finally, a uh, an extreme right wing party has taken hold electorally that it is has got a lot of votes in the Bundestag in the, the new one that will be formed and uh, but that's quite different that the, than the thinkers and so uh, in fact the thinkers uh, try to distance themselves from uh, parties like this uh, in that. Uh, the thinkers will say, well, you know, uh, we're serious about, you know, our intellectual claims and uh, we work within the realm of ideas. Some of them, the most prominent uh, German one is a guy named Gutz Kubitschek. And uh, he's been glad to advise the leaders of the AfD uh, and particularly to uh, uh, keep people off the streets. Uh, his argument is that uh, it it doesn't help the party if it's uh, 
you know, members of the Bundestag are out in the streets with uh, uh, extremist radicals. Uh, but a deeper reason for this is that the thinkers do not view themselves as part of the political scene. Um, this is, a uh, you know, an area where uh, Buchanan is, is quite different because he would like to be a part of both worlds. In contrast, people like Eric Kubitschek, Fritz Kubitschek, um, are sort of vanguardists. They're, they're almost, they are like Leninists. Um, despite what I just said, uh, uh, Steve Bannon has called himself a Leninist, and uh, many of the Europeans do as well. Uh, they're elitists who see themselves uh, as standing above the masses, mm-hmm. as not wanting to engage in the con- kind of compromise that political parties do. Um, but, but, of course, the AfD and other extreme right parties are drawing on the same discontent, modern democracy, the same polar, polarization to, to get votes. And uh, uh, particularly in the old East Germany, the, the East German uh, lender, the, the states of the modern, the contemporary uh, German Federal uh, Federal Republic of Germany, um, they look for votes where they can find them, and they find them among the uh, people who are unemployed, people who are uneducated, uh, people who are are simply uh, angry. They're filled with rage over what they perceive to be the injustices, the injustice of uh, uh, the unification process. Even mm-hmm. though. Uh, what's fascinating is while these people argue that uh, unification has treated them badly, uh, most most of these young people weren't even alive when the Germanys were divided. So all they really know is the current Germany. Right. So, um, I mean, leaving aside perhaps the thinkers and their role in all this for the moment, um, you know, there are certain circumstances that uh, would seem from recent experience to be, you know, auspicious for the emergence of these kind of far right movements. And if you look at Germany and the United States, I mean, one part of this may be that, um, you know, Merkel kind of tiptoed towards the center and even into the left to some extent and kind of corralled their issues and thereby kept herself in the chancellor's office for 16 years. Uh, but she left, you know, her right flank, so to speak, sort of open uh, because she thought all the votes were basically to her left. And that made a lot of sense and, and worked for her for a long time. But it also left this, you know, the right flank open. And you could perhaps say the same thing about Donald Trump's rise, right? That the two parties, ordinary, a lot of ordinary people came to see the two parties as, you know, essentially one party. And, um, you know, to some degree, this kind of thinking was also around on the left and, you know, provided support for Bernie Sanders to some extent. Um, but do you see uh, that as a as a dynamic uh, yeah. that is important? Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it, for a lot of these people, I mean, it doesn't really matter what they read. And you know, if you think about the identitarians in Europe or the Proud Boys or the Boogaloos in the United States, uh, they don't do a lot of reading, uh, particularly in the United States. Um, 
But what has happened is that both in the United States and in Europe, and to an extent in Canada and Australia, um, this language of anti-elitism has paid off really well. Uh, it's it's paid off because it has allowed uh, groups that were always angry at the system and extremists to link arms with people who in other circumstances um, simply would have voted for the middle of the road. So this is this is what Trump did in, in the United States, and he was very effective. And in this case, Bannon's counsel uh, was ex- extremely important. Um, and uh, so there's the anti-elitism. Of course, the difference between most Europe or all European states uh, and the United States is that maybe I should uh, make some of the East European states and maybe Italy an exception. But the general difference is that the right, the extremist right, has penetrated American politics. Uh, and uh, if you look at the Republican Party, you know, it's not your grandfather's Republican Party or even your father's uh, because it's become so successfully uh, brought to the extreme left by, I mean, the extreme right by organizations like the Tea Party. Uh, the great benefit of European elections and particularly proportional voting is that there's, there is the possibility, uh, a greater possibility to counter, um, right wing or extreme left wing attempts to, uh, penetrate the system. So the diff, if you look at Germany today, uh, a lot of the coverage of the German elections has been uh, uh, not really negative, but uh, people seem to be worried because of the Germans' difficulty in forming a a, uh, a coalition. Um, I'm not worried at all about Germany because what I see in Germany is the fact that a bunch of parties that are middle-of-the-road parties will in some way form a governing coalition, even if it takes a long time. In contrast, in the United States, the uh, Republican Party has gone so far to the right and uh, the politicians uh, who want to keep getting elected uh, as representatives of the party have been cynically and opportunistically, they opportunistically gone to the right, that it's going to be hard to have a politics of the center, politics of, of the middle, middle of the road in the United States. I, I don't even know uh, if it's possible at this point. It's quite, it's very worrisome. So I'm much less worried about Europe than I am about the United States. Right. Well, I guess I share that concern. <laughs> um, you know, Trump, it seems to me, however inept uh, and perhaps an incompetent, uh, you know, I think there was a serious effort to overthrow the constitutional system or that yeah. is to say he was not prepared to live within any constraints yeah. because he has, hasn't had to do that for his entire life. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and could do all kinds of things that other kids couldn't possibly have gotten away from, uh, away with. Yeah. And he spent his whole life, you know, as he apparently did yesterday, um, 
you know, telling people not to respond to subpoenas and uh, delaying tactics and oh my goodness. You know, counter <laughs> yep. suing and yep. all this Every sort of day stuff. there's a new concern. Yeah, and the contrast yeah. with Europe is that um, the constitutions of these countries really aren't being, you know, they're not under threat. Uh, and, you know, the other thing about Europeans is that um, – uh, they have somewhat less of a problem with truth than, than we do. Uh, you know, uh, I always talk with my students about the fact that, uh, you could meet, uh, you could get together with somebody who has all of the accoutrements of, you know, neo-fascism and, uh, you know, it's quite frightening and, um, you know, bring up the subject of climate change and they would say, well, of course there's climate change. We need to do something about that. Uh, in many cases, um, you know, they would embrace uh, vaccines, whereas in the United States, we're prepared to our, our American citizens, many American citizens are prepared to believe that whatever is thrown their way. And uh, so that's a huge contrast. And naturally, you know, uh, as you know, and all of your listeners know, this is rooted in American history this kind of anti-intellectualism and uh, whereas it doesn't exist in Europe, at least to the extreme extent that it does in the United States. Right. So apropos the comparison of Europe and and the United States, I mean, um, I guess I want to ask a question that connects with your book, Vanguard of the Revolution, uh, about the history of the Communist Party. I mean, you know, one interpretation of fascism was always that it was a response to the communist threat, essentially. Uh, and I would say, you know, certainly since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the com- communism has not particularly been a threat on the world scene. And yet we're having this, you know, kind of extreme right wing reaction, the kind of transformation of the Republican Party in the U.S. that you've just described, but also the efflorescence of these right wing thinkers and movements uh, in various places in Europe and elsewhere. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, how is the historical situation today, you know, similar to or, and different from the one that led to, you know, historical fascism? Well, I mean, the the biggest difference, I guess, is that in the period when fascist parties developed uh, and, you know, also uh, uh, the, the extremes on the left, um, you were uh, building states, you were building democracies, it was all about building, whereas today it's about taking down. And, uh, you know, so again, back to the, the people that we're studying, and that's why I, I keep coming back to this idea that they're contemporary. Uh, uh, these people are manipulating the levers of or the imperfections of liberal democracy to to suit their purposes. And um, that's quite different. And so, you know, if you were to say, well, then, you know, are they truly Democrats because they say they're Democrats? Uh, I would say no. Uh, their ideas are not consistent with liberal democracy, but still they work within it. And um, what makes their arguments so dangerous is that in the past, many people, uh, 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 racists in the United States, for example, would have been quite uh, concerned about expressing their views publicly. I'm not speaking about neo-Nazis, 
uh, but I'm just speaking about ordinary voters. Now what has happened is that uh, the space has been created uh, for them to, to express these views, even if even if they have no idea about the, you know, any sophistication to uh, the right-wing intellectual critique. So I guess as a, perhaps a final question, I mean, you've drawn a rather stark comparison, I guess I would say, between Europe and the United States. I mean, you know, there are those who've joked that, you know, historically uh, the, eventual, you know, destination of European countries is always kind of fascism. And the United States has been, you know, relatively immune from a serious, you know, militarized movement that, you know, abrogates the Constitution, rules by fiat, etc., etc. Uh, that's not to say it's been a model democracy necessarily. But, <clears throat> but that's a big kind of switch, it seems to me, in uh, the ways in which, you know, you're, you're, Framing the United States and and Europe, so um, you know. Well, you know, do you I, see I, a way out? Do do I see a way out? Uh, you know, naturally, this is the big question. I I see a better way out for uh, Europeans uh, because they have multi-party systems, and it is possible to pull people back toward the middle. In the United States, uh, we have extreme polarization. Uh, one of the ways in which I see a way out uh, is, is simply in having leaders uh, like Joe Biden, for example, who can make the case for the middle. And uh, I, you know, I, I can't possibly read what's in people's heads and I don't know which surveys to take seriously or not. But I, I think Americans um, basically want to be in the middle. And uh, so my guess would be that uh, uh, many people that support Donald Trump are probably a little relieved that they don't have to wake up to the turmoil. Uh, they have other reasons for supporting Donald Trump. And as I emphasize to my students, it, it isn't like uh, he appealed solely to, you know, unemployed uh, uh, middle, lower middle class Americans. Uh, he appealed to uh, a lot of very smart, wealthy people who saw advantages, particularly finance, financial advantages, in having him in the White House. So at this point, I'd say the uh, real challenge is for people like uh, moderate Democrats to embolden more and more Republicans to return to where they were before. And uh, so that's where my hope lies. Um, so uh, but I would also emphasize that when you think about the extreme right, both in the United States and in Europe, there are a lot of similarities. They're different. They have different ways of expressing their views. Uh, Americans are more focused on race and nation. Europeans, the European right is more focused on ethnicity uh, and in many cases more internationalist than the United States. But they're both um, very similar in that they, they borrow on the general concept of identity uh, and the fear that people's identities are being threatened. Uh, and um, 
no matter how they define the, the aspects of their critique, that's very much the same. Uh, in the United States in particular, uh, but here I get back to a difference, uh, the Republican Party is a dying party. Uh, it's getting smaller and smaller, uh, and uh, it's just, it, it, it's not the bastion uh, of, uh, of uh, views, moderate views that it, that it had in the past. So, um, to a great extent, it has become in the interest of the Republican Party. And again, I would emphasize, uh, not everybody, but I would emphasize the people on the right, Tea Party uh, types, to do everything that they can to stay alive. Mm-hmm. So these are, you know, when you talk about support for uh, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and American extremes, um, it's very differentiated. It's very differentiated. The advantage of the European electoral system is that uh, people can find bits and pieces of, of what they want in different parties. Um, that's very difficult today in the United States. Um, you know, I think all of that is right. Um, but I wonder about the, uh, you know, what is it that's really driving uh, these kinds of movements, these kinds of uh, concerns, uncertainties on the part of, you know, various populations. I mean, it's not just an American phenomenon. These are, you know, things, as you've been pointing out, that are happening in in Germany, in Poland, in France. I mean, new parties are sprouting up in Italy that have no real, you know, ideology they're just the five star movement or la france en marche la république en marche mm-hmm. in, uh, in france and things like that there's this kind of apolitical response to the political landscape because obviously people presumably well, the, the, are not happy about the politics but the main the main driver is communications uh so today it's a question of who has the monopoly on uh or who's trying to get the monopoly on the circulation of information, true or false, and in the case of these extremists, generally false, to the greatest number of listeners and viewers. Um, this is why when you look at somebody like Tucker Carlson, uh, I'd say, um, you know, he's one of the greatest, he is one of the greatest threats to liberal democracy in the United States and perhaps in the world because he has an enormous following. And he's very clever. He, he, Tucker Carlson would never attack democracy. He would never say that, uh, 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 that, you know, he in any way questions rights. Uh, he'll say that he believes in inequality, uh, and he, and he does so frequently, but he makes the, makes his case for extreme positions by taking advantage of the ambiguities and imperfections of of democracy, uh, but I, you know, he has the most viewers, and uh, in a climate, uh, you know, where it's bad in both places, but particularly in the United States, in a climate where uh, people buy into the idea that it's up to them to create their own truth, uh, or that they have somehow natural rights. Uh, to do what they want, uh, that freedom means uh, your freedom, as in the case of uh, unvaccinated people, your freedom 
to get other people sick and to give them COVID. Um, uh, these are these are tropes that are incredibly dangerous. And again, a lot of it is based upon uh, the technology. Uh, however, I'd emphasize it isn't the technology that it's that is the problem. The problem is the individuals who have arguments uh, in in both continents, also in Australia, to uh, that are very appealing to people. Um, the other thing that they do that's uh, that's very clever um, is, and so if if you listen to Tucker Carlson, for example. His whole pitch to his viewers is the elites think that you're smart and I know that you're not. And so think about this. And because you're smart and because you have good sense, think about this issue. I'm just going to present it to you. And um, he, he makes people feel good. And then he presents them with absolute nonsense. Uh, you know, he he'll he will say something like, I'm not against vaccines. I'm all for vaccines. But then he'll, he'll suggest, I mean, he said, uh, several months ago, he said, well, 5,000 people who got vaccinated have died. And, which is a ridiculous correlation. I mean, there are many ways of <laughs> explaining why people, you know, yes. but he'll, he'll just throw it out and he'll say, so here's a fact. Um, you make your own choice. So he's not, he's telling people, I'm not going to say what you should believe. I'm just going to present you with facts. But of course, what he is doing is he's, uh, uh, creating a world in which he can, in fact, influence them. I mean, that's why he's talking about replacement theory and very few people are objecting. It's crazy. Replacement theory is racist, you know, uh, uh, it's racist point. Uh, it, it's just absolutely indefensible. Uh, but he's getting away with it. And every day there he introduces a new uh, theme, which is designed to influence his viewers. And I would say what's really sickening about all this is he's doing it for his ego and he's doing it for money. This is about money. Right. Uh, the more controversy, the more money. And uh, so it's just quite selfish. Uh, he got vaccinated. I'm, I'm positive that, you know, he goes home and he tells somebody in his family, you wouldn't believe what those fools bought today. And then he'll think of something even more controversial. It's for money. Well, on that cheerful note. <laughs> <laughs> but But back to my other point, okay. uh, it isn't necessarily the... We're not at the end of liberal democracy. I'm hopeful right. that uh, more, just more uh, respectful, more sane, more sensible uh, politicians, other leaders will um, gradually bring people back to a sense of normality. Well, I can only share that hope and uh, look forward to it happening. Uh, yes. Well, yes. We, don't, we don't have any choice, John. I mean, when it comes down to uh, you know, possible worlds in the future. I mean, you, you, it, I mean, it doesn't come down to optimism or pessimism. It comes down to hope. And so, and hope is a good resting point. It's a good foundation. We hope that we'll be able to save uh, a great political system. Mm-hmm.
Well, uh, I'm a little pessimistic, uh, certainly, about the near future, but I hope things turn out, you know, for the best. And I think there are possibilities of that, but I think there are also some pretty bad potential outcomes, which makes me nervous. But in any case, uh, that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Jim McAdams for sharing his insights about far-right intellectuals in the contemporary political landscape. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.